the, the regular listener was excited about 10 and they were excited maybe about verses and then Vitology was the weird record right and we you know we talked a lot uh, you know, through this pod about the idea of the return to form Pearl Jam record. <laughs> right. And like, I think that's what the public was really expecting for No Code. Right. Uh, and they almost went the other way. 93X presents the Celebration Rock Podcast with Stephen Hyden. This is the Celebration Rock Podcast, presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. It's Vitology, Ology, Part 4, talking about No Code, the fourth Pearl Jam record. Now, if you guys haven't been paying attention, if you've missed our last couple of episodes, we've been doing a special series about Pearl Jam called Vitology, Ology. It's a seven-part series where we're going through each record, episode by episode, I mean, the 21st century records are going to be kind of squeezed into a couple episodes, and I I know some hardcore fans don't like that, but I think it'll make sense when we get to that part of the series. But anyway, we've been going through Pearl Jam's catalog, and the reason that we're doing this is because Pearl Jam is being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame next month, and uh, Pearl Jam is a pivotal band in rock history, certainly American rock history. Uh, in rock music in the last 25 years. Uh, They are arguably the biggest rock band of the last 25 years. I guess you could say either them or Metallica are in the conversation. There's maybe a couple other bands. But Pearl Jam's had a really interesting career arc, I think, and uh, the episodes that we've had so far have have borne that out. Uh, the, The album that we're talking about in this episode, No Code, I think is... One of the most fascinating records that Pearl Jam has made, if not the most fascinating. Um, I'd have to say that on my personal list of Pearl Jam records, and and this changes all the time, I I, probably have said different things in different episodes, but after listening again to No Code this morning before recording this introduction, um, I think it's my second favorite Pearl Jam record. Um, Versus, I think, would still be my number one. Then No Code... Although no code and vitology kind of battle it out. And then after that, it's a constantly shifting group of records. But no code comes out in 96, August of 96, almost exactly five years after 10 comes out. And I think when we talk about this record, we have to begin by looking at the alternative rock landscape in August of 1996. The number one record on the Billboard charts, the week that No Code was released was Jagged Little Pill by Alanis Morissette. One of the biggest selling rock records of the 90s. Really one of the biggest selling rock records of all time. The thing with Jagged Little Pill, of course, you know, there's tons of singles off of that record. Everyone knows the big songs off of that record. Uh, The key architect, along with Alanis Morissette, of the songs, of all those hit songs, was a guy named Glenn Ballard. Now, Glenn Ballard is sort of the epitome of like a pop music insider. Uh, Before he teamed up with Alanis, he worked on the two biggest Michael Jackson records, Thriller and Bad. He worked on the first Wilson Phillips record. He worked on the first couple of Paula Abdul records. Uh, He, you know, he's a hired gun. He's a guy that you bring in if you want to have hit songs. And he was paired up with Alanis Morissette, this Canadian former child star who had tried in the past to become, to kind of break into the music industry. And with Jagged Little Pill, she is now sort of an alternative rock person. And with Glenn Ballard, she writes these great pop songs sort of in the guise of alternative rock music. And it's a humongous hit. And it kind of shows that this thing that happened in the early 90s with Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains and Soundgarden, it's now something that you can safely turn into pop music and the audience is going to accept it. You know, not only do you have Alanis Morissette, you have the first Bush record, 16 Stone, comes out at the end of 94 and ends up just taking over the rock airwaves in 95. You have 
that live record, Throwing Copper. You know, live, essentially a journeyman rock band, but with Throwing Copper, they become one of the biggest bands in America, at least for about a year or two. Um, in 96, you also have a band called Matchbox 20 that comes along, who, if you squint your eyes, you can kind of see the outlines of like a Pearl Jam-like band with Matchbox 20, but filtered through a mainstream rock sensibility. Like if Journey or Ario Speedwagon emulated Pearl Jam, it would have ended up being like Matchbox 20. All of these records that I just talked about, no matter what you might think of them personally, they all sold way, 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 way more copies than No Code did. <laughs> these bands were arguably much more popular than Pearl Jam was, at least in terms of commercial pop music. You know, the, the, the sort of numbers that Pearl Jam was doing earlier in the decade with 10 and verses and into Vitology. Um, with No Code, um, you can see that they were not really that kind of band anymore. Um, and, you know, how does this happen? You know, how does sort of the leader or one of the leaders of like a musical scene or movement or whatever you want to call it or a marketing scheme, you know, if you're more cynical about it, how do they end up sort of getting lapped by bands that you could say are sort of carpetbaggers or, or people that are imitating something that other bands have done? Um, and I think the short answer to that is that Pearl Jam, along with Nirvana, obviously, they disappeared. <laughs> you know, in the early 90s, you know, Nirvana was making music videos and making records, and Pearl Jam was making music videos, and they were making hit songs. And then in 94, of course, Kurt Cobain dies, so there's no more Nirvana. And Pearl Jam, you know, they, they put out Vitology, it's a big record, but they're not touring very much. And the reason they're not touring very much is, they're, is that they're locked in this battle with Ticketmaster. You know, they're doing this for, for their fans, you know, because you, know, you, you buy a ticket through Ticketmaster, it might cost... It might, cost $20, but then they put 10 or $15 worth of exorbitant fees on top of it, and now you have a much more expensive ticket. That was the issue back in the mid-90s, and, I mean, it's really the issue now. I mean, this has not really been resolved. But at the time, you know, Pearl Jam was really the only band that was willing to sort of critique this and try to do something about it. But the result of that, you know, something that I think you can look at as a, as a righteous stand... You know, I think anyone would say that Pearl Jam was in the right. In the short term, what it did was it made it much tougher to see the biggest band in America live. Uh, because Pearl Jam wouldn't play venues that were associated with Ticketmaster. So they had to sort of put together these patchwork tours of like out-of-the-way venues using ticket brokers that were not always the most accredited companies in the world. You know, There was a lot of problems with counterfeit tickets shows being canceled you know i mean just think about if, if pearl gem didn't care about Ticketmaster, and they had just operated as sort of a a mercenary band you know that they, they want to be the biggest band in the world and, and and you know they don't care about the you know the, sort of the business side of it i mean the, the types of shows that they could have been playing at this time uh i mean they really could have cashed in way more than they did on their level of fame you know, I mean, I think about, you know, there was that story about Garth Brooks around this time. And this was in the Twin Cities area where he basically said, I'm going to sell tickets until no one wants to buy tickets. And, and, and however many tickets I sell, that's how many shows I'll play. And he ended up playing like 15 shows or something at the Target Center uh, here in Minneapolis. I have to imagine that if Pearl Jam had done the same thing, that they could have played you know, like 10 shows at Madison Square Garden in New York. You know, I mean, that's not inconceivable to me that Pearl Jam could have done that in 95, 96, if, if, if they had just done maybe a more conventional type tour. But they didn't do that. And for this audience of people that was desperate to see Pearl Jam, whether it would be in person at a concert or on TV, on MTV, on, in music videos... Pearl Jam just wasn't accessible. The other thing, too, that wasn't so much clear at the time, but we've come to learn in subsequent years, is that Eddie Vedder was being stalked at this time. There was a stalker, like, 
after him. I mean, th- th- there's that story that he tells. I think this is in Pearl Jam 20 about this crazed person driving their car at 90 miles an hour into a wall outside of his house. Like that's the level of crazy that Eddie Vedder was dealing with at the time. So that made him step away for a little while. So the net result of this is that Pearl Jam is out of the public eye at a crucial point in their career. And what happened is, is that the music industry does what they do, which is that they found bands to fill the void. Bands that were more commercial than Pearl Jam. Bands that were more willing to play ball. And for the pop music audience, the facsimile was good enough. The, the Matchbox 20 record that was kind of like 10, that was sort of following in 10's footsteps, for a lot of people that was preferable to a record like No Code, which was, no matter what you else you want to say about it, it does not have songs like Alive, even flow, Jeremy, all the big hits. It's a much different kind of record. It's a record that really reflects the way it was made, which is in a, frankly, in a very dysfunctional manner. Um, you know, when you read about the making of this record, Pearl Jam was in essence imploding at this time. You know, they were recording this record in stray sh- sessions here and there while they were playing these tours that were kind of haphazard tours. I mean, they were just playing these shows and they're doing these recording sessions. You know, often, oftentimes, you know, they'd play a show and then do a recording session afterward. And when you listen to the record, to me, like when I was listening to it this morning, what comes through most clearly is exhaustion. The band sounds exhausted. You know, they weren't talking at this time. There was still a lot of creative tension about Eddie Vedder taking control of the band and taking control away from other members. I mean, Jeff Amon didn't even come to the first couple days of recording because no one told them. No one told them that they had started making the record. Jeff Amon, like a core, you know, one of the founding members of the band, um, you know, had to hear through the grapevine that his band was starting work on their fourth record. You know, he almost left the band during, during the making of No Code. So you can feel that strain, that exhaustion when you listen to the record. But to the record's benefit, Pearl Jam was somehow able to use that exhaustion as inspiration. They, they integrated that feeling into the songs in a way that I think like when you listen to those Neil Young records from the 70s, the Ditch Trilogy, you know, Time Fades Away, On the Beach, Tonight's the Night. You know, those records have a similar kind of vibe of weariness and exhaustion and, and you know, that, that, that kind of three o'clock in the morning type, type vibe. And it adds so much atmosphere to those songs. I mean, similar to those Neil Young records, you know, the, the songs on No Code sound like, you know, similar to Vitology, you know, the songs sound like they're, they haven't been polished, you know, that maybe there's only been one or two takes of the song. And maybe the song was just written before they laid it down. The polish isn't there, but it adds to the documentary aspect of the record. You know, I, I was looking at the cover of No Code, and it reminded me of the cover of XL on Main Street, the Rolling Stones record, which is another sort of great record about a band at the end of its rope. <laughs> you know, like when the Stones made XL on Main Street, they were in that mansion in the south of France, staying up all night, doing a lot of drugs, recording, you know, around the clock, and it resulted in this great document of a moment in time. And the songs on that record are great, but it's more about sort of the totality of that record, of that feeling that you are in the south of France with the Stones, in the room, you know, like when you listen to that record. And I think the strength of No Code for me is that same sort of feeling that it it has a documentary-like feel, that when you listen to it, you feel like you're with Pearl Jam. Um, And even if it's not a great time uh, for the band, you know, there's an intimacy to the record, there's a vulnerability that draws you in. Um, 
that I think makes it a really powerful experience, even if sometimes the songs themselves don't always add up. I mean, I would argue that this record, you know, the final third, you could cut off and probably not miss it, at least in terms of the songs. Um, you know, th- there are some songs on here that are sort of throwaways, that are, that are, that are filler tracks. Um, but if those songs weren't there, the record might be too perfect. <laughs> you know, the imperfections of No Code, I think, are a big part of why it resonates so much here over 20 years later. So let, let's get into the discussion of this record. Uh, my guest for this, uh, for this episode is Derek Madden, who is the other guy that works on this podcast. He's the guy that records it. He's the one who puts all the episodes together. And I wanted to have him on for a bunch of reasons. I mean, number one, you know, he's had to listen to all these other Pearl Jam conversations that I've had, and he has to keep his mouth shut while I'm talking, while I'm saying my own opinions, you know. Um, And I I feel like he deserved a chance to finally voice his own thoughts on this after listening to me yap about Pearl Jam so much. So I wanted to have him on for that reason. I wanted to have him on, too, because, you know, he is an enormous fan. I mean, he is the prototypical Pearl Jam fanatic who started buying bootlegs in the early 90s. And back then, when you bought bootlegs, you had to spend like 50 to 60 bucks on a CD that might sound like shit. Like, you had no idea what it sounded like. So... He was one of those guys that did that, scouring the import bins and all that for Pearl Jam bootlegs. Derek is good, too, because he's been working in radio for a long time, rock radio. And this was around the time that Pearl Jam started sort of backing away from the radio. So I was curious to get his point of view on that. So I think we had a good conversation. There's a lot to get into with this record. So let's talk, let's delve here on Vitalogy Geology into the fourth Pearl Jam record, No Code. Here I am with my friend Derek. I wanted to have you on, Derek, because you know we've done a bunch of these Pearl Jam episodes, and usually after every interview I do, you and I end up talking for like 10 or 15 minutes about Pearl Jam. So I thought we should get one of these on, you know, on tape here, and I figured we should talk about No Code, even though I, I think you have mixed feelings about this record. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's. I, I feel like No Code is sort of a mixed feelings kind of record, right? <laughs> like, like I, I think the band has really mixed feelings uh, uh, about No Code, and you can sort of find some quotes from them yeah. uh, around, uh, you know, like, ah, this is a little bit rushed. Um, I know Jeff uh, has really mixed feelings about No Code. Well, yeah, he, like, left the studio during the making, right? Like, he yeah. kind of stormed out. Yeah, so they, they they actually started recording uh, and were recording for a few days before he even found out. <laughs> so <laughs> I think once he realized, like, oh, they're making a record without me, um, it, it was hard for him. And, uh, I, you know, I know that he was like, I got all these songwriting ideas and people aren't really interested in them. I think he does have one song on the record. I think Smile is a, is a Jeff song. Which is a great song. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, yes. And I think he, so he had all these ideas and he wound up putting them mostly on a, on a solo record. Uh, and, and I know he's definitely said that that was the record where he was really feeling like, uh, he was going to quit the band. I mean, so. what has anyone ever explained like why they got started without him? Like, was he like shooting hoops or something and they couldn't get him on the phone or what? <laughs> um, you know, I, from what I understand, it was one of those things where, uh, I think it had something to do with sort of Eddie's grip on the songwriting process. And, and at least the way I heard it explained was that we were just going to fight if we were all together. So we wanted to do some things a little bit separately before we brought certain people in, I, I guess. I mean, you know, it's sort of well documented. We've talked about it on, on a few of these pods um, that the, you know, the process in the beginning, right, that you had Stone and Jeff were, were the two sort of songwriting guys, right? And they were the ones that did, uh, you know, the Mama Son demo. And then Eddie just kind of came in and sang over top of it in the beginning. Right. And then Versus is kind of like more of a joint band effort. Uh, you know, everybody sort of got songwriting credits. You know, I think it was important for Eddie to like, prove this was a band right that was kind of a thing (laughs) and then and then after that once eddie vetter was so much more famous than everyone else there was that period you know the vitology and no code i think kind of they kind of go together in that way where he'd really assumed the control of the band and i think it took the other guys a while 
to come to grips with that. You know, this is, you know, Jeff and Stone had done uh, not only Mother Love Bone, but they were in uh, Green River with the Mud Honey guys. Like, they were pretty established guys within that Seattle scene before Eddie Vedder showed up. Right. And, you know, now they're, hey, those other guys standing <laughs> stand behind the rock star. And so, yeah, so I think that there was some of that, that chafing uh, in No Code. And then the other thing I think is, like, you can – this, to me, is is definitely, like, their most Neil Young record. Right. Uh, you know, it's the one that came out after they, uh, you know, were his backing band on Mirrorball, and they put out that EP with him. And the Merkin Ball. Yes, the Merkin Ball. With, with, with I Got Shit, which yes. is one of my favorite Pearl Jam songs. I, I love that song. That's a great song. And, I, you know, I... I, I if there's anything I'm mixed about feeling wise, I think it is kind of Neil's influence on the band. And I think you can see the, the good parts of it there. Like a song like smile is a really great example of that. Right. Um, you know, it's got that really cool Neil Young sort of harmonica line coming in it and some really great sort of Neil Young riffs, uh, a song like present tense, like that guitar tone that McCready's using that sort of like real feedback heavy, like that's great. <laughs> Uh, but then there is, you know, there's the, the around the bend, which is like the six minutes of them trying to do Harvest Moon, right? Uh, which well, is, and, and off he goes too. It's another one you don't like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those, those, like the that's just not the strength of Pearl Jam. And uh, you know, it's, there's no knock against Neil Young. Harvest Moon's a great record, but like, right? To me, the six minute slow acoustic dirge. You know, Eddie. I love Eddie. He's maybe my favorite rock vocalist of all time. But like. He's got a very different register than Neil Young. And so when you graft him onto those songs, they don't have the same kind uh, of range or, or feeling uh, to me. So, yeah, right. I, you, know, I, you know, they're also still kind of doing some of these sort of throwaway, you know, Vitology style little experimental, you know, spoken word tracks and stuff like that. So the, the, I love no code and, and honestly it ages a lot better than some of their other records, but it's, there are things about it where you go, okay, this is filler. Well, you know, and what you said at the end there, I think is interesting because when I talk to Pearl Jam fans now, like this is the record that is often brought up as their favorite Pearl Jam record, yeah. like no code along with Vitology um, even like yield comes up a lot as a favorite, but like especially, but no codes rep is is pretty strong now, and it's just different than how the record was perceived in 1996. Like in in 96, my memory is that people thought that this was an indulgent record, and that especially coming after Vitology, which you know Vitology is sort of this beautiful mess of a record, and I think it's consciously constructed that way you know there are songs on there that like i don't think even the band thought were good you know but it's an experience type record it's like you know this we're gonna throw everything in but the kitchen sink type album and as like you said that aesthetic kind of carries over to no code um although this record is more muted i think than vitology is um you have hail hail i think is like a great kind of barnstorming rock song i guess smile would also fit in there yeah red mosquito is kind of that red mosquito but i mean there's also like you know there's a lot of kind of quieter songs a lot of songs that i think are you know songs that deliberately do not give pearl jam fans the red meat that they want, you know, that yeah. you would want from, like, you know, you mentioned, uh, I actually like the song Off He Goes, but I understand the criticism of that. Um, it is clearly Eddie Better trying to do sort of like a Harvest Moon type type thing. Around the Bend, I, I tend to agree with you, is kind of a rambling song. Why, why is that song six minutes? Um, I don't know. I mean, this record, from what I've read about the making of No Code, it sounds like this was a record where they went into the studio without fully formed songs. It was entering, you know, like basically how Pearl Jam worked at this time was that, you know, people would bring in fragments of songs and Eddie Vedder would finish them off. Yeah. And I think on No Code, they were, um, you know, they were doing a lot of jamming in the studio. I think you can hear that on the record. There's just like a lot of the songs seem um, like they're still being written as they're being recorded. Um in a way, that's what I really like about the record. It, it, it's loose. Yeah. There's a real vibe to it. Um, but, uh, you know, it does undermine it at times. But I don't know. I, I have really good feelings about this record, too. I really like it, even if sometimes when I listen to it, I feel like that, that there are dead spots in it. 
you know, but like the spirit of it, there's something, I mean, there's something about this album. I think what people respond to is sort of the dysfunction on it. I think yeah. that's why people like Vitology it's too. It's interesting in that way. Right. You know? And I, I, I do think it was the first, you know, you talk to fans, you know, the, the people that stayed with the band, I think there's a reason that they like it. I think it was sort of the first kind of fans, the record for the fans in a way, right? right. You, you know, because the mainstream public, uh, you know, who had kind of, you know, the, the the regular listener was excited about 10 and they were excited maybe about verses and then Vitology was the weird record, right? And we, you know, we talked a lot, uh, you know, through this pod about the idea of the return to form Pearl Jam record. <laughs> right. And like, I think that's what the public was really expecting for No Code. Right. Uh, and they almost went the other way and made something. And, and, and so I think those people who were into that, because to me, like a lot of the blueprint for 2000s Pearl Jam, you can kind of see in some of these songs. And uh, so if you're into that, I think this is a record that really speaks to you. And, right. you know, this was also very much in that Ticketmaster period. I saw a show on the No Code Tour uh, in Buffalo in uh, like Marine Midland Arena or something, which was like I, I was going to college in, in Ithaca, New York. So it was like a four hour drive. But like I was we were all in, you know, they, you know, I think they maybe did 15 shows that summer. Right. Um, so, you know, to be within four hours of one was a big enough deal that everyone I knew was like going and making that trip. And so, you know, if you were into it and you kind of put the work in, there was, you know, there was stuff in it for you. And, and for me, you know, the Pearl Jam was like the, my first kind of like great love as a rock fan. And my second was Radiohead. And, you know, for me, the early Pearl Jam records were very much like, okay, you got, I, I got these right away. I saw uh, the video for Alive. It was home for Christmas high school, I think I was watching MTV at like two o'clock in the morning (laughs) and, um, the video for live came on. I'd never seen anybody like do a live music video before. It's like, they're playing live. This is what what is happening. Right. And and I went, I lived in like rural North Carolina. I got up the next day. I went to Camelot music at the mall and I bought it on cassette. I didn't know if it was going to be worth the CD splurge. So I bought it on cassette and uh, I fell in love with 10. It was just an immediate record. And Versus for me was very much the same way. No Code was the first one where like the songs really revealed itself to you over time, uh, like Radiohead records tend to do for me. Right. And I really appreciated that. And, I, you know, it, at the time, I remember just listening to this record over and over again and gradually like finding different things in each of those songs and kind of that, you know, that album experience that we don't have anymore. Um, and I think a lot of like, if you're, you know, you're that kind of fan, you're that kind of Pearl Jam fan that was really trying to dig in. There was, there was a lot for you there, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. And everything you're saying, I was just nodding my head throughout that whole, uh, the whole riff that you were on there. Yeah. That totally rings true for me. I mean, uh, you know, kind of going back to how this album was received at the time, um, you know, critically it was sort of mixed. It was, Easily the worst-selling Pearl Jam record up to that point. Um, I, I think it's now sold in the neighborhood of a, of a, like a little under two million rec- records. But like, I mean, I think the first week sales were around like three hundred sixty thousand. Yeah, I think and, they were like hoping for like six or something like that. Yeah, I, I mean, like you know, they were selling about three times that around you know versus Vitology era. So I mean, there really was a drop off with this record. To some degree, I think that was deliberate. Uh, you know, because they they made a record that doesn't really have any obvious singles on it. Yeah. You know, even like Hail Hail, which is like sort of a, you know, like a pile driving, you know, Pearl Jam rock song. Um, you know, that's not as hooky as like Better Man. You know, even you know yeah. from, from Vitology. Um, but there's also what you were just saying about the touring aspect of Pearl Jam, and you know, even I forget about this when we talk about Pearl Jam's history. It is kind of insane that at their peak. They really didn't tour that much because of this Ticketmaster thing. Like, you know, they could have been doing, I mean, you know, the members of Pearl Jam are doing very well financially, but like they could have made so much money. They could have been playing huge stadium shows. And they did. I mean, they, in 95, they did play huge stadium shows, but they could have done like stadium tours at that time. Um, and, and they didn't. And it was really hard to see them. Super and, hard. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I think that with a lot of people, you know, it, it was hard to see them, and then they made a record like No Code that was sort of hard to get into. And like you said, it was like a Radiohead record in that 
it does reward patience. But I, I, I wonder if people were losing patience with Pearl Jam just because I was like, okay, I can't see you live. And now you're putting out this record. There's no bangers on this record. Like, why do I have to work so hard, Pearl Jam? Like, wait, you'll cut me some slack, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I think that was the feeling at the time, you I, know, back I, then. I, I would agree with that. And I sort of remember it that way. Um, you know, this is around the time that I was just getting into radio. So, uh, you know, public perception of these records and thinking about, you know, singles and things like that, like, like that stuff mattered to me. Um, you know, and I think it's pretty telling that, you know, the, the, the who you are is the first single, yeah. uh, from no code. And, you know, this is, uh, you know, 96. So, you know, bands like Bush, uh, and, <laughs> right. and, and, you know, there are a lot of bands out there. There was a lot of really commercial radio ready, modern rock that made it very easy for you. Right. Like live throwing yeah, copper. Great yeah. example. I think, I think maybe Atlantis Morris said it come out by then, yeah. you know? So, um, kind of doing what like Pearl Jam and Nirvana had done in the early '90s, but like even more of like a poppy kind of friendly yeah. thing. And and like, I mean, it does remind me of like in the '60s when you had the Beatles, like early Beatles making pop hits, and then they went kind of psychedelic and weird. Yeah. So then the Monkees came in and just made songs that sounded like early Beatles songs, and that's what happened then in, in the '90s with Pearl Jam. It was like in a way they were competing with themselves, right? In '96, and they're competing with themselves with the, here's our you know Eastern mysticism <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> song with the sitar. Uh, it's like, you do you know. want lightning crashes or do you want you know who you, and you know now you'd say, well, you know who wants lightning crashes? But like at the time, it was like everyone I, wanted lightning, or crashes I want I alone, yeah. or I want yeah. everything Zen. Yep. You know, this like, yeah, this Eastern sort of George Harrison, like, you know, song that Pearl Jam's doing. I don't know about that. So, so yeah. So I think for a lot of people that was maybe, you know, there, that was, a, it, it was a welcome departure, you know, like the other thing too, I think was, you know, Pearl Jam was really taking themselves very seriously. Yeah. Uh, particularly, I mean, I think Vitology is maybe the peak of that, um, well, certainly, as far as Eddie Vedder complaining about being famous, yeah, that was that was that record, right? And this song um, has Lucan, which is you know sort of the famous the soccer stalker song, right? It, which the more I like read into this, and when you like listen to Lucan and just like the pure like rage that's in that <laughs> song, you go, oh, this was probably really a thing that he was really really dealing with. Um, and it sounds pretty bad. I mean, was that the woman that like drove at 50 miles per hour into the wall outside of his house? I think so, yeah. And I mean, I, you know, hey, Eddie, I understand. If I had a woman like that, or if I had a stalker or whatever, you, you have a right to write a song about that where you sound really pissed off. Yeah, yeah. We, you know, that's justified. <laughs> and, you know, I guess the reason that Eddie's not really on Mirrorball um, very much um, is that he couldn't really leave the house. Like, yeah. <laughs> so um, it seemed to have a very real effect on, on his life. Well, he started, um, you know, and the press really started to turn on him at this point. You know, we had Brian Hyatt on an earlier episode in, in the 10 episode, and he talked about how in 96, Rolling Stone did a, sort of an infamous cover story on Eddie Vedder, where, which they didn't interview Eddie Vedder. I mean, I, I'm sure they tried and he turned them down, but it was basically a story about like what a weirdo Eddie Vedder is, that he's this sort of, well, that he's a weirdo, that he's sort of secluded, and also that he's a phony, that he's like not really as tortured as he makes himself out to be. And of course, Eddie Vedder didn't really care for this story, kind of made him upset at Rolling Stone <laughs> for a long time. But th that was sort of like the weird kind of double-edged backlash that he faced, that on one hand, people started feeling that like, okay, this guy is just, you know, totally glum, and uh humorless and then but he's also like not that tortured he's you know he he was a child actor growing up and he you know uh did you know he was in his old in, in like in his former band before Pearl Jam he was more of sort of like a party rocker type yeah. guy you know there's all this evidence of him doing all these things where I mean, I don't really know what people expected from him at that point, yeah, that, like, he, that he would just be, like, listening to Joy Division all day long or something, or some manic-depressive guy. Yeah, doesn't it? I mean, it seems kind of silly now. Like, we can't all be these things. Right. You know, like, I mean, the 90s was like, a, you know, it's it's kind of a dark, brooding time. That was just sort of, you know, the mood of things then. You know, No, no Code has uh, Habit on it, which is like... To me, like, if you want to talk about a song that just says, speaks 90s vibe, like, here's my, 
song about my friend with the heroin habit and right. it's super dark and weird. Um, you know, that's just sort of where we were. But yeah, he was that guy, but he's probably also the guy who grew up and had a fairly normal childhood. Right. He was also the guy who liked baseball. He's the same guy who goes to Cubs games and hangs out with Bonnie Hunt and laughs. Like he's right. like that's who we are as people. You well, know? and he's in you know, and now he's allowed to you know, now he can just be a guy. I mean, I think yeah. people look I mean, people look at Eddie Vedder now as this sort of iconic rock guy, but he can also show up at Cubs games and just be whoever he is. But yeah, I mean in the in ninety six though, I mean, you really did start to see a shift from sort of the the alt rock scene politics going on of like about authenticity into like what the nineties became at the end, which was this sort of combination of like you have rap rock over here, which is like taking really sort of the spirit of glam metal that mm-hmm. alternative rock supposedly killed, but never really did kill. I mean, it was just sort of on the periphery for a while, then rap rock brought it back where you have, you know, Fred Durst doing like uh, nookie and stuff like that. So you have that. And then you have bands um, like sugar Ray and smash mouth that like kind of took over. Like they kind of became like the new kind of rock bands. Like don't forget like matchbox 20 matchbox 20. Yeah, exactly. These sort of like nice guy bands. Mm hmm. Um, that there's a Lilith Fair scene too going on then. With yeah, the, Lilith Fair. Yeah. yeah, definitely. But you know, the, but definitely the idea of um, yeah, being a band from Seattle that writes songs about uh, kids who kill themselves in class. You know, that wasn't really a cool thing in '96. And um, I don't. It's always interesting with Pearl Jam. I don't know how you feel about this because you know Pearl Jam. You know, there's this narrative about Pearl Jam that they were this huge band and that in a way they sort of squandered the momentum that they had. That as big as as they were, that they could have been even bigger if, you know, A, they hadn't have feuded with, with Ticketmaster, if they could have toured a lot more than they did in the mid-90s. And if they had made a little bit more concessions to the mainstream, if they had made like no code for instance, but put a song like better man on it mm-hmm. or a song like daughter on it. So like songs that could still be on the radio and make Pearl Jam huge. You know, there's a, there is sort of a, um, there are people that argue that like Pearl Jam owed it to rock and roll in a way to continue to be this big band and that they kind of stepped away and that created a void that we're still dealing with in a way. And I know I kind of subscribed to that for a while. I've kind of changed my mind because I feel like, Pearl Jam did what they needed to do to survive, you know, and they obviously have succeeded in that. But I don't know, like, what do you have any thoughts on that? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, look, I think there's definitely some truth to it. Um, to me, the, the the biggest thing was not making they stopped making videos, right? Um, which a I think they would have been really good at if, if Jeremy <laughs> is any indication. Uh, but, you know, they stopped. They didn't make videos for verses, which is no. you know would have been a massive, massive album. Probably would have been twice as big. Had they done that, or Vitology, or No Code? Um, I think they did for Yield. I think that's when they came back and did a video for Given to Fly. I'm pretty sure there's a video for Given to Fly. I want to say I think I think Do the Evolution okay. had an animated video, right. like Todd McFarlane did or something like right. that. Yeah. Um, at, at which point it was kind of too late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that. Like yeah, in '98, <laughs> and it was like, okay, yeah, like you've a video from Pearl Jam in '98 would is not the same as a video in '93. Yeah, it would not have the same impact. I don't know about the idea that they owed it to rock and roll uh, because for, for, certainly I think they tried to do plenty for rock and roll. And I think, um, you know, the Ticketmaster thing in which literally, I think they really thought other bands were going to step forward with them <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and they like, they kind of stepped up and everyone took a step back really. Uh, and you know, and they're out there in front of Congress, um, you know, and between that and, you know, it, it's weird, like the like the live album thing is sort of looked at as like a sometimes people look at that as like an indulgence or something. But I'll, I'll tell you, as a Pearl Jam fan, I had a kind of a mission in life to have everything that they had ever played. Right. Uh, not just recorded, but played. So I would get these bootlegs and they were 30 bucks a pop at first. And then when they had sets long enough to have two CDs, they'd be 60, 80 bucks a pop. Um, and so you'd kind of collect them and Pearl Jam was like, there are people paying outrageous sums of money for these shows, you know, 
they're, they're half the time they're terrible quality. Why don't we just take the soundboard recordings and we'll sell them for ten bucks on our website, and and the fans can have them and not get ripped off, you know? And the money goes to the people actually making the music. So to me, you know, it's like all these kind of fan friendly moves. You know, doing that and then sort of the combination of doing that and stepping away, I think, was what enabled the band to relax. And I think it's a big part of why they're still here. Right. I mean, every one of their contemporaries uh, either flamed out in, you know, horrific tragedy or, you know, they, they, they went the Soundgarden way where they just completely put the brakes on it. Um you know, but no, it didn't end well for anybody but them. And I think the fact that they're still making music and like actually friends now, yeah. you know, yeah, it's a direct result of that. So I, I can't, how could you begrudge them that? You right. Know? Well, and, you know, it is interesting to, you know, cause I was just thinking, you know, what would have happened to Pearl Jam's career if Yield came out after Vitology and then maybe no code, if, if those records switched places, because I feel like Yield in a way, is more like the record that people would have wanted from them in 96. Yeah. And then when it came out in 98, like that record did pretty well, but like it wasn't as big, I think, as if it had come out in 96. I agree with that. I think you know? I think Yield would have been big. And like, I think... like Given to Fly or something. I feel like that's a song people would have loved to have heard. And then, but when it did come out, like a lot of casual Pearl Jam fans had sort of checked out. Yeah. Or even a song like, like Low Light on Yield, which is, a, you know, just sort of a naked sort of folk ballad. Right. I think would have, would have played really well, uh, you know, on radio in like the mid 90s. Right. Um, and yeah, I think, I, I definitely think that that would have made them bigger. I'm also guessing in that timeline that they probably would have broken up sometime around that <laughs> Right, <know>? right. <laughs> well, yeah, it, you know, and it, it, I think you're right in that. Like, the way that they did it, it kept the band together. It also, in a way, has kept the people that care about Pearl Jam interested in them. You know, and I said this in another episode. Like, when I was finding guests for this series, it was a lot easier to find guests for, like, this record and Vitology and some of the sort of curveball records in Pearl Jam's discography, it was harder to find p- people to talk about 10. And I think because 10, it's such a big record, people feel like there's maybe nothing interesting to say about it, or it's maybe not as interesting to like say that you're a fan of that record that, or that's your favorite Pearl Jam album. Yeah. Like I feel like if they, if they had just tried to make 10 over and over again, um, it might have been better for them in the short term, but in the long term... They would probably be stuck in the '90s, you know. Like they probably would have been like many of these bands that, you know, you might still have affection for them, but like, you know, they didn't. But they didn't really transcend the decade yep. in the way that Pearl Jam did. Um, and I think, like with No Code, it definitely is one of those records I think that people like because it was maybe underappreciated when it came out. You know, like it is kind of like a, a Radiohead record maybe in that way that. You know, people love Radiohead records because they feel like there's something that they can discover in it that's unique that hasn't just been totally overexposed everywhere else. Um, you know, there's nothing like Even Flow on No Code. You know, there's no songs that you have heard a bajillion times on rock radio or on MTV. Uh, so you can maybe feel like this record belongs to you more than one of their more sort of broadly popular records. Yeah, yeah, like the glare of the light is so strong on 10 that even if you get into uh you know the the lesser known tracks like i mean you know porch is one of my all-time favorite <laughs> pearl jam songs but mostly because of the way they play it live right um as opposed to you know the two-minute version that's on that record but like it's not it's not revelatory it doesn't feel revelatory to talk about porch or garden or uh release uh on 10 even though they're sort of lesser known songs just because Everybody had the record, you know, and everybody mm. sort of knows those songs. Whereas, like, you know, nowadays, you know, the the shows are so much about, well, what are they going to play? And and I think a lot of that comes from because there are lots of gems sprinkled into the Pearl Jam catalog, you know, po- post those first three big records um, that are really fun and worth hearing, you know? Yeah. And I just don't know that someone's going to do that for one of the songs on 10 not like not that people aren't psyched if they play you know garden right <laughs> but, right but it's just it's not the same so are, are you when, gonna get excited then like when eddie vetter comes out and plays around the bend like uh, live is that <laughs> are you, are you, gonna, are you gonna be like you know i will say that there's a bunch of like i have like acoustic 
I have bootlegs of Pearl Jam shows where they do acoustic and they usually play off he goes like if they do an acoustic yeah. set and I think it sounds awesome live. You're right. Now, in that context, uh, and I've been fortunate enough, uh, you know, I lived in the Bay Area for a long time, uh, and they played the Bridge School uh, benefits, you know, fairly often. Yeah. Uh, so I did get to see a few of those kind of all acoustic sets. And, and in that context, um, you know, around the bend or, or off he goes, or it's a little bit more. Or, uh, have they ever played I'm Open live? That's a great. I'm sure they have I, somewhere. That's got to be one of the lesser performed songs, though. <laughs> it's, it's way down there. Although you know, the last time I saw them, um, you know, on the last tour I saw, somebody brought a sign, and it was it was like it's been 1,600 shows since you played, uh, and it was a song that I had never heard of. Okay, which, and it was like, and they saw the sign and played the song. Okay. So, um, so you know they, you know, there. I'm sure there's a guy out there who really loves <laughs> I'm Open, and one night they were like, "Do it." And I, actually, you know what? I take that back. Also, I know they did uh, on this last tour. They did No Code in its entirety. Oh right, in Moline, Illinois. So I'd have to imagine they played it then, at least. Even then, they were like, "Nah, <laughs> we'll skip it." Can you imagine they just skipped one? Like, like, yeah, you guys, you, you, you guys don't. You guys want to hear I'm Open? Okay, we'll do I'm Open. Um, I think, uh, you know, talking about like good, like great moments on No Code. The the, the moment for me on this record that always stands out um, is the first song. Sometimes, because you know, if you look at Pearl Jam records before this, and even a lot of the ones after. You know, there's slam bang openers. You know, you got once, you have go, you have last exit. Those are the openers on the first three records, and then on uh, no code, they sort of inverted it a little bit, where you have this quiet, you know, sort of almost like meditative song, and then it slams into hail hail right after that. Um, I'm gonna go on a limb and say that this is the best opening. In the Pearl Jam canon, the one-two punch on No Code is, I think, my favorite opener. Like, do you have a favorite opener? Is something you'd single out? Mm, that's you know, or or are you can agree with me that it's sometimes going into hail hail. You know, sometimes I I agree with you in the sense that I really like that one-two punch. That that kind of uh, uh, dynamic, I think, is really great. I really like Go. Yeah, uh, as as the opener on verses, uh, you know, it just it's it, it's a really great tone setter for that record, and I think it's a really underrated Pearl Jam song. Yeah, so that might be my favorite single opening, uh, but I do I do know exactly what you're talking about, and I I also really like uh, you know that kind of run uh, in in the middle where you know you go from uh, smile uh, to red mosquito, but of course that's also because I fast forward. Yeah, off he goes is in the middle of there. <laughs> so, um, and I love that's part of it. It's such a momentum killer in the middle of those. Those are two of my favorite songs on that record. So, and um, uh, and there's a song "Mankind." I mean, like towards the end of the record, I feel like no code drops off a bit because you have "Mankind," you have "I'm Open," and you have "Around the Bend." Yeah, um, and, and "Present Tense" is is a great song, and it's one they still play live. But even that. You know, because there's so much like kind of spoken word, right? You know, sort of vibe in it before it really picks up. There's like, um, it, you know, it doesn't have that feel. Like it, 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 it definitely feels like an album track. You know, what I mean? right? Wait, what do you think about mankind? Like Stone Gossard singing. You have like one of the <laughs> finest rock singers of all time. Like, no, no. Let's let's have Stone Gossard sing a song. I mean, again, I mean, that I feel like mankind. It's part of the schizophrenia of. Pearl Jam at this time because Eddie Vedder took over the band and yet having Stone Gossard sing a song seems like a you know we're, we're going to show that we're a band type move yeah and they did know? that I want to say Riot Act was like a record where, where Eddie very consciously let other people write and you know and contribute lyrics and things like that which is fine but have Eddie Vedder sing it uh, yeah I completely agree I, you have one of the finest rock singers I really I think Eddie Vedder one, I think one of the great kind of rock, certainly arena rock voices. You don't want to hear Stone Gossard. You know, Stone Gossard, you're a fine guitar player. I don't want to hear you sing. Yeah, and the guitar playing on Mankind's kind of good, but no one's ever going to pay attention to that song because <laughs> Stone Gossard's singing on it. I know you just called that song "Bathroom Break." You know, it's like 
Stone, we love you, but you know, come on. Side project, yeah. And then Eddie, and then Eddie Vedder's doing spoken word after that. You know, it's like okay, yeah, I, I, you know, the side one, I think is great. I think if you ended no code at present tense, you know, I don't, I, I don't think you would be really missing anything essential at that point. It, it's just you know, this the way that the record is sequenced, yeah, because like even like Vitology. It has some dodgy tracks in the second half, but then you have Immortality at the end, yeah. which is a great song. So it's sort of like, like I, it's sort of like a shit sandwich, you know. You have like some shit in the middle, but like the ends are good, you know. But like at no code, it it really drops off. I think in the last, you know, third of the I, record, you know, I think if you last fourth of the record, Vitology no code yield. It's kind of their Scorsese period, <laughs> you know what I mean? Where they're like, they're so or Martin Scorsese, if you were a singles fan, right? Right. Um, there's a, there's such a, you know, like they're so big. There's nobody really to tell them no, and I think they're just like, all right, let's just leave everything in, right? You know, I, yeah. I mean, obviously, they're, they have B sides from this time. They put, they want to put them out eventually, but it's really like all of those records. They're each a couple of songs too long. Uh, and you know, in Vitology's case, maybe by design, right? In in I guess you could say that in no code they had to know when they're throwing in the Stone Gossard track that the <laughs> you know this is maybe not the most essential cut on the album. I don't know. I mean, do you think Eddie was sort of like hazing Stone Gossard at that point, being like, "Hey, <laughs> okay, you want to you want more power in the band? <laughs> All right, we'll put in we'll put on Mankind on the record." Well, I feel like okay, I feel like there's listeners who love Mankind and they're going to be really pissed off <laughs> that we're not, that we're making fun of Mankind. It's, I mean, it's actually like it's a it's a decent song. I just wish Eddie Vedder was singing it. That, that that's my main complaint about it. Yeah. And look, and Stone has been in other bands and doesn't sing in them either. You right. know what I mean? Like it's I I love Stone, but uh You know, Stone too like um he was like he was like one of my favorite members of Pearl Jam in the early days. And then, like, around this time, like, he cut his hair, and he started wearing, like, the button-up shirts, like, all the way, and he's, like, wearing, like, uh, cargo shorts a lot and stuff. Yeah. And uh, I liked it when he had, like, the, sort of the Jennifer Aniston hair, uh, 10 era, you know? Like, I liked that. That's my favorite era of Stone Gossard. He really embraced the the dad glasses, too. Yeah, he did. (laughs) He was sort of, like, because he was so, like, kind of, like, a cool-looking rock guy. And then he kind of went, went like totally anti, like rock guy. Yeah, he looked like a guy, like a dad who just got off the the riding lawnmower and then went on stage. And he was like too young to be dressing like that yeah. in the '90s. Yeah, that was a little strange. I, you know, I was a Jeff man. I'm gonna be. I'm, oh yeah. I'll reveal some embarrassing information that I uh, I played bass uh, in a band in high school. We did a fair amount of Pearl Jam covers, and I did in fact own a giant floppy hat. Yeah. That I wish. <laughs> Wear on stage and jump up and down. I wholesale ripped off uh, Jeff. We still haven't really. Have we come to a conclusion on the proper pronunciation of his last name? Well, is I'm, it Amit or Amit? It may be Amit. Amit? Oh, I, man. I'm just I, going with Jeff. I don't know. I, there's something sort of. Uh, it's like an unanswerable question, <laughs> I think. Actually, it's probably a very obvious answer. We just don't there's, know. Yeah. I feel like I've been told how to pronounce it and then i forget but when we had the when we we had had this discussion i actually went and googled it and i wound up in some like pearl jam thread where even they were arguing about it and of course eddie vetter's no help because he's apparently pronounced it all three ways on stage before so it's like yeah are you ament or are you ament or are you yeah i don't know but or, he was my guy yeah. You know, you know in, in your book you talked about that, you know, the rivalry, and you were a Nirvana guy yeah. right back then. And I was I was kind of the other way. I feel like this is sort of representative of maybe the way the bands felt about each other, where like I was cognizant of the rivalry and I was definitely like Team Pearl Jam. But I didn't hate Nirvana. You know what right. I mean? Like it was like, all right, if you're gonna make me pick sides, I'm picking this band. But those guys are pretty good, you know what I mean? Right, right. Um, whereas I think the Nirvana people were like, screw those posers, you know? Right. Oh yeah. I mean, I think if you were inclined to pick one band or, or the other and you picked Nirvana that you were probably way more insufferable, like you were probably an insufferable <laughs> person, uh, because you know, you know, the reason to hate Pearl Jam in the early nineties would be that, oh, they're this like corporate rock band and yeah. like, they aren't from the streets like Nirvana, you know, it's like all this kind of. Well, ridiculous stuff now, but yeah, that 
I was definitely one of those insufferable Nirvana fans who would diss Pearl Jam until like I just could not deny Pearl Jam's rockiness. <laughs> I just could not deny that Versus was a great record, and I, I, I gave up the ruse shortly after that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, I mean, No Code. I guess Vitalogy has some overlap on this too, but like, No Code definitely was sort of, you know, sort of post Nirvana. Like Pearl Jam was sort of alone. I mean, Nirv- Soundgarden. Was uh, you know down on the upside came out in ninety six, yeah. but they were about soon they were yeah. soon to fall apart. So it is you know grunge was definitely on its last legs in ninety six. Alternative rock as it existed in the early nineties was was dying, and you know this was sort of the beginning of Pearl Jam trying to figure out how to like move forward. Yeah, um, and it is like. I don't know. I don't know if I would call it a grown-up record. It feels like a like a, you know, you've just graduated from high school and like now you're sitting on your parents' couch. Like, what do I do now? Do I go to college? Do I get a job in a factory? You know, like I'm a little lost. Yeah, like it it, it feels a little bit like a like a lost band. It's like it's like um like they're girls. Period. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> You're like you Lena gra- Dunham? Yeah, yeah. Like you've graduated and you, you know, you're supposed to be out there in the world, but man, you really got a lot of stuff to figure out. And sometimes it's awkward and sometimes it's embarrassing. Yeah, there's so many, great. there's so many graphic sex scenes on this, in this <laughs> yeah. on this record. You know, yeah. it's like, it, it, he's just naked all the time. I know. It's like, we got to look at, yeah. Yeah. Look at it. Yeah. McCready. Yeah, McCready. You know, it's, the other uh, thing I should, I, I feel like we should mention is the, uh, shout out to Jack, Jack Irons. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Jack Irons was um, such a great drummer. I, I I love his drumming on Mirrorball. Yeah, the yeah, Neil Young record. Neil that, Young was super complimentary of of Jack Irons too, on 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 his and his playing on the record said he just killed it every song. Yeah, and uh, it it was kind of sad what happened to Jack Irons. I mean, he kind of had a mental breakdown while they were, I guess, getting ready to tour on Yield. I mean, yeah. The, he did not seem like a guy who was necessarily built for the touring life, which I guess is why he survived in Pearl Jam as long as he did, because Pearl Jam wasn't playing a ton of shows uh, when he was in the band. But yeah, he's a great drummer. Yeah, and I think his his playing on this record is really good. This yeah. is the, I think his style is sort of the most asserted on this record. And you know, when you listen now to a song like like Who You Are, which uh, you know, it, it can be one of the more awkward things. The drumming on that song is really is really good, right? You know? And um, yeah, he was like a versatile drummer. Yeah, I mean, because he was obviously in the Chili Peppers, so he could play that kind of funky style. But then he was also really good at playing like straight on. Like he was really like tight and in the pocket, but could be big. Yeah, and and fluid. Yeah, you know, like it's something like that coming on the record right after Hail Hail, which yeah. is super tight. You know, like. Um, yeah, I think it sort of shows his range. And then I guess you know, whenever you you hear the band talk about Jack, like if at a time when they really seemed to be having trouble getting along and there were a lot of fights, like he seemed to be the calming agent. Right. Um, you know, in that group. And I I don't know that they would have like like there was definitely a vibe that he sort of held the band together for a bit of a time. So Right, and he was what the fourth or fifth Pearl Jam drummer. <laughs> it's crazy, man. <laughs> it's like you know, as we move along in the series, you know, with Yield, that's when Matt Cameron enters the picture, and then you know the drumming sort of problems in Pearl Jam end, or the the drumming personnel problems end, and they have, and then after that, they have the same lineup for like twenty years. But yeah, it's a, that is sort of a weird thing about Pearl Jam. You do think of them being a band where it's always been the same guys, but. They do have this weird spinal tap footnote where it's a different drummer like every record. Yeah, basically. Ever and ever. So where did you where do you stand on the induction in terms of I, I feel like I know you write a little bit for Dave Adams. Oh yeah. You know. Well is Jack Irons getting in? Jack Irons is not getting in. I think it's just Cameron and Cruisin, I wanna right. say. Yeah. Right. Which is weird that it's Cruisin. Although he played on ten. I I don't know if because like that's you know like you get inducted 25 years after your first album so yeah. like he played on the first album so then he gets in um i don't know i mean i definitely think dave abruzizé abruzizizé <laughs> i 
I think he should be in because he's like my favorite Pearl Jam drummer. Like yeah. I love that era, and I love his soul patch, and I love his long hair, and he just seems like a. It seems like he doesn't really belong in that band. He's just like a total rock dude, but I, I love him for that reason. He's like very Bill and Ted, totally. Bill, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure type guy. He, um, he's like he reminds me of Eddie Vedder in Singles. You know? What I mean? Yeah, exactly. Like, he's dude, just kind of this dumb, sweet yeah. guy. You know, like he's just. Yeah, watching watch nature videos like, while he's high. I just imagine, like, you know, Eddie Vedder reading Noam Chomsky and, like, Dave playing hacky sack <laughs> with some guys in the parking lot, you know? Like, just a chill dude. Um, I would put Dave A in before Jack Irons, personally. I yeah, think. Me too. Um, but, you know, I don't know if there's, like, a rule at the Hall of Fame you can only induct two drummers. And then after that, like, no, no more drummers. I don't know what the rule is there. I, I assume Eddie Vedder, if he put his foot down and he said, I won't show up unless you induct Jack Irons or, or Dave A. But he probably said, don't induct Dave A. Which, you know, like, I love Eddie Vedder. I, I, I think he, he's a great rock and roll dude, you know, great songwriter, admirable in many ways. But the one, my one sticking point is his Dave Abruzzese, uh, <laughs> how he treated Dave A. I don't yeah. like that. Um, I feel like this always this this, this this has come up in a bunch of episodes. Dave A doesn't, doesn't even play on No Code, but you know we're bringing it up anyway. Because right. <laughs> we got to ride for Dave. Man. <laughs> we got to ride for Dave. We got to slip it in every episode. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you know, just to wrap up here, like where would you put No Code uh, on your list of like favorite Pearl Jam? Albums? Oh, it's it's really high for me. Versus is my favorite. Yeah, me too. I yeah, that'd be my number one. Um and I would probably put no code second or third. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I mean, you know, uh, this isn't the most, you know, we're we're not the most original Pearl Jam rankers here, but I, I you know, I I do, you know, the the run from verses to no code is I think my favorite, you yeah. know. It's hard to argue against that. Although I do like the early 2000s albums now a lot more. And I, you know, we're going to be talking about that later in this series, um, but yeah, I, I'd probably put it like third. Yeah, I mean those those records all have great moments. The later records, yeah. And, and I don't, you know, I'm not here to slag later era Pearl Jam. I think there's there's a lot of good, but I would say if you walked into the arena and found out they were playing an album front to back, you know <laughs> what I mean, and then you found out that album was say Riot Act, right. It, you're not going to have the same feeling as if it was no code. Well, you know, it, have, you know, vitology. It, it's like you know, talking about the Stones or something. It's like Exile on Main Street has a different feel to it than like Tattoo You. And like I love Tattoo You, but you know, the Stones were at their peak in the late '60s and early '70s. So like, there's sort of a magic of that period. Even when you hear sort of like a weaker song from that period, you're like, well. It's the, it's Keith Richards doing heroin in the south of France, you know, like that's awesome. And Pearl Jam has the same thing with those mid '90s records, like that was their moment. Yeah. So uh, even like a song like "I'm Open" has significance because it's on No Code, and like Pearl Jam meant something different in 1996 than they did in 2002 or three or or even what they mean now. Right. Like, uh, I remember where I was right. listening to No Code or when I bought it, and you, you just don't have that. And it has significance kind of in the yeah. culture that, you know, yeah. they couldn't, re- you know, it's just the way things are. Um, yeah. Like, the new Stones blues album is really great, but there's no, <laughs> there's no like, expectation right. that you're ever going to hear them play that. Yeah, you're not like, right? oh, you this know? is, like, this is, this is good. I'm just going to throw away sticky fingers now. I don't need it. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> this is good too, you know. Bridges to Babylon. That's good. You know, get rid of Let It Bleed. We don't need that. You know, you're not going to say that. Um, even if you know, even though I will defend Bridges to Babylon. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, no code, flawed record, but a great record, fun record to revisit. So, Derek, I'm glad I got you on. Uh, you know, it, it's really a thrill. I've been through this whole podcast. You know, sitting on the other side of the board, <laughs> like just kind of like. And I know I have said things or guests have said things that you you were chewing your tongue off because you're biting it so hard. So I'm glad you could get on and voice your some Pearl Jam opinions. Yeah, so thank you for having me. Oh, cool. awesome, man. All right. That was No Code. Talking about it with Derek Madden. I'm pretty sure this is my second favorite Pearl Jam record. I feel like I'm going to probably amend that opinion by the end of this series. I feel like 
you know, because I've been listening to a lot of Pearl Jam records for this series. So, you know, my opinion is constantly shifting. I mean, I feel like the top three or four are pretty well in place. It's just a, it's just a matter of like where you put them exactly. But for now, I'm going to say Versus number one, No Code number two, Vitalogy number three. Uh, so that is where I stand on these records. Um, man, we have a lot to get get to from here. I mean, we, we're, we're in 96 right now, but this is where it starts to get weird after this. <laughs> There's some weirdness coming up ahead. And I'm excited to get into it. Um, but guys, thanks again you know, for, for hanging in with me on Vitalogyology. It's been great talking about this band, delving into these records. And I uh, look forward to doing more of it. So I will talk at you guys next week. <laughs>